Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are tuned to The Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, just starting on Laguna's KX 935. Tonight, my topic is, so you think you may be psychic. I think we all do every now and then. And it is possible that some of us are, but I also want you to listen to a few people who have strong views on the topic of psychic abilities. I'm going to start with this story from The Guardian by Felicity Carter. It starts off, I was a fortune teller. I would read tarot cards or interpret horoscopes. She says, as a teenager, she devoured a book called Positive Magic, which was, in fact, an instruction manual for witches, with the central idea that if you wanted something and your intentions were good, you just told the universe and then the magic would happen. But she says nothing she wanted, which was fame, money, a hot boyfriend, actually came. So she taught herself to read tarot cards. She was a science student at the time and thought it would be a fun game for parties. But that changed after she took her cards to her part-time job and read them for a colleague during the break. She said she picked the card for pregnancy and they both laughed about that because her colleague had wanted her tubes tied. But a week later she said, guess what the doctor told me this morning? And yes, she was pregnant. And the writer of this article, Felicity Carter, was officially psychic. She thought, well, okay, and enrolled in a psychic class. In that class, she learned to say the first thing that popped into her head, because the teacher said that your first thoughts are the most psychic ones, coming before your rational mind interferes. She said she also learned in that class that all things are connected and everything is a symbol of something else. And as a consequence, she suddenly saw signs and omens everywhere. Let's tell the future. Let's see how it's been done. By numbers, by mirrors, by water. By dots made at random on paper. By salt. By dice, by meal, by mice, by dough of cakes, by sacrificial fire, by fountains, by fishes, writings in ashes, birds, herbs, smoke from the altar, a suspended 
to the Sharon Isle with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My topic tonight is, so you think you may be psychic. Felicity Carter, who wrote about it in The Guardian, from which I'm quoting, did. She volunteered at the Spiritualist Church as a clairvoyant. What happened at this church was congregants would place a flower on the table, the clairvoyants would choose one, and then they'd, quote, read the flower at a microphone. She said, 
she grabbed one of the flowers that was in a packet of silver foil. It was a rose and the petals were so crushed from being packed so tightly in foil that Felicity didn't get a single vibe from it, she said. So she just described the symbolism. You're feeling battered and bruised, she told the congregant. And in fact, the woman said she was a victim of domestic violence. So at the age of 19, Felicity's psychic reputation soared. She said the attention was intoxicating and the universe told her that she wasn't really cut out for science when she saw her second year results. So she dropped out to pursue theatre and at the same time she signed up for a one-year course at the Sydney Astrology Centre. She said it was a cavernous commercial building in a seedy part of town. Course began with the meanings of the zodiac, from Aries to Aquarius. Then it moved on to the luminaries, the sun, what you will become, the moon, what you brought into this life, and planets. After that, she was taught how to calculate planetary positions and cast horoscopes. Horoscopes aren't a true map of the heavens. The Babylonians, who invented astrology, believed the sun rotated around the earth, and modern astrologers still use earth-centered charts as if Copernicus had never existed. But that's only the start of the scientific problems. The astrological meanings themselves derive from a principle called sympathetic magic, where things that look alike are linked together. So, Mars looks red, so it rules red things like blood. So, Mars thereby rules surgery and war. You forecast by combining meanings with planetary movements, says Felicity. So, for instance, say Saturn, which is the planet of restrictions, is about to transit the first house of self. Your life is going to contract. You're going to get more responsibilities than usual. Or maybe you'll be denied the chance to take on more responsibilities. Or maybe a critical, cold person will enter your life. But it is, being the planet of restrictions, a good time to go on a diet. Felicity learnt that astrology was one big word association game. And she actually loved it, though she was losing interest in other mystical practices. Partly she didn't have the time, because she was now immersed in theatre, while also working as a temp typist at St Vincent's, a Catholic hospital. But as she bounced around from one department there to another, her views changed. She thought of organized religion as somewhere between an embarrassment and an evil. But this was the 90s, and as AIDS did its devastation, she watched nuns offer compassionate care to the dying. Christian volunteers checked on derelict men who vomited down their clothes. And she became uncomfortably aware that New Agers didn't do things like build hospitals or feed alcoholics. They bought self-actualization at the cash register, she writes. Anyway, she got accepted into doing a music degree and her days filled with those kinds of classes and her nights with rehearsals and at the same time put her in a cash crisis because she could only do office work during academic holidays. So when she saw the ad for a fortune teller, she pounced on it. She found out that she would be charging $50 an hour, which was a significant sum at the time. 
So she wanted to make sure she gave value for money. She said she intended to dazzle customers with her insights. But half the time she said she couldn't get a word in. It turned out most people really just wanted the chance to unload for an hour for their $50. She said the range of problems faced by people who can afford to fork out $50 for fortune telling turned out to be quite limited. It was troubles with romance or troubles at work or troubles mustering the courage for a much-needed change. She said she heard those kinds of stories so often she could often guess what the problem was the moment someone walked in. Heartbroken young men, for example, talk about their heartbreak to psychics because it's less risky than telling their friends. So she could offer advice like, let her go, she's not worth it. She really didn't have anything psychic about it. What she learned was that intelligence and education don't always protect against superstition. Many of her customers were stockbrokers or advertising executives or politicians. They were dealing with issues whose outcomes couldn't be controlled. And it's that uncertainty that drives people into astrology, not stupidity. Millennials are particularly into astrology because they grew up with Harry Potter and graduated into a precarious economy. Just a reminder here that you're tuned to The Sharon now and me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My topic tonight is So You Think You May Be Psychic. And I'm reading from an essay Felicity Carter wrote in The Guardian because that's exactly what she thought she might be. Felicity said what ultimately broke the spell for her imagining herself a psychic was people swearing she was a psychic. Some of her repeat customers claimed she'd made very specific predictions when she really hadn't. And it dawned on her that her readings were really a co-creation between herself weaving a story about her customer and then the customer's memory adding a few new elements. She said she figured this out when a friend came to her who'd gone to a clairvoyant and raved about the reading she'd had. She said it was full of astonishingly accurate predictions. Her friend had taped the session, so Felicity asked her to play it for her. In fact, the clairvoyant hadn't said any of the things her friend claimed she'd said. Not a single one. It was her friend's imagination that had done all the work. Still, Felicity felt she could be uncannily accurate when she gave her own readings. So maybe she really was psychic and it wasn't a case of coincidence. She said one Sunday she went straight from work to a party so she hadn't really had time to shuck off her psychic persona. And a student there mentioned she wasn't sure what she should specialise in at college. Should it be photography, graphic design or industrial design? But as he said, I told her, do photography. The student looked at her with wide eyes. How did you know, she said. She said photography was her real love, but her parents didn't approve. Felicity said she thought about it for a moment, and then she realized why she'd said photography. She told the student, you sounded happier when you said photography. She said she realized her psychic teacher was right. The signals we pick up before conscious awareness kicks in can be the most accurate and valuable. Then this man came in to see her. He had red-rimmed eyes and clammy skin, and he was obviously agitated. He was grabbing at his fingers or stroking his arm. 
He said a figure kept appearing at the edge of his vision and something grabbed his fingers or stroked his arm and it was happening more and more frequently. He said, help me, I think I'm under a curse. I saw a Catholic priest, but he couldn't help me. Could you? Well, yes, I could, I said. I knew what he needed to do. Felicity said it just so happened that that particular week she typed letters for a neurologist who specialised in brain diseases. And some of those letters she typed had strikingly similar symptoms to what this man was displaying. I told him, get to a doctor now. The man said, are you saying I'm crazy? I said, no, but Catholic priests know what they're doing. If he couldn't help you, this isn't a curse. But it was obviously what the man wanted because it made him furious. He told her she was a fraud and stormed downstairs to demand his money back. She said, after that, I packed my astrology books and tarot cards away for good. She says she can still make the odd forecast. And here's one that the venture capital pouring into astrology apps will create a fortune-telling system that works because if you sprinkle magic on the top of something, you can sell people anything. Went to the fortune teller Had my fortune read I didn't know what to tell I had a dizzy feeling in my head Took a look at my palm She said, son, you feel kind of warm She looked into a crystal ball She said, you're in love How could that be so? Listening to the Sharon now on Laguna's KX935. I'm Sharon James, and my topic tonight is So You Think You Could Be Psychic? Well, if you think that, first 
have a listen to famous skeptic James Randi. He has quite a lot to say about the real versus the surreal world. I, um, I have a very peculiar background, attitude, and approach to the real world because I am a conjurer. Now, I prefer that term over magician because if I were a magician, that would mean that I use spells and incantations and weird gestures in order to accomplish real magic. No, I don't do that. I'm a conjurer who is someone who pretends to be a real magician. Now, how do we go about that sort of thing? We depend on the fact that audiences will make assumptions. For example, when I walked up here and I took the microphone from the stand and switched it on, you assume this is a microphone, which it is not. <laughs> As a matter of fact, this is something that about more than half of you will not be familiar with. It's just a beard trimmer, you see? and makes a very bad microphone. I've tried it many times. The other assumption that you made, and this little lesson is to show you that you will make assumptions, not only that you can, but that you will when they are properly suggested to you. You believe I'm looking at you. Wrong. I'm not looking at you. I can't see you. I know you're out there. They told me backstage that there's a full house and such. I know you're there because I can hear you, but I can't see you because I normally wear glasses. These are not glasses. These are empty frames. <laughs> Quite empty frames. Now, why would a grown man appear before you wearing empty frames on his face? To fool you, ladies and gentlemen, to deceive you, to show that you, too, can make assumptions. Don't you ever forget that. Now, I have to do something. First of all, switch to real glasses so I can actually see you, which would probably be a convenience. I don't know. I haven't had a good look. Well, it's not that great a convenience. I have to do something now which uh, seems a little bit strange for a magician but I'm going to take some medication. This is uh, a full bottle of Calm's Forte. I'll explain that in just a moment. Ignore the instructions. That's what the, the government has put in there to confuse you, I'm sure. Uh, I will take enough of these. Hmm. Indeed, the whole container. 32 caplets of Calm's Forte. Now that I've done that, I'll explain it in a moment. I must tell you that I am an actor. I'm an actor who plays a specific part. I play the part of a magician, a wizard, if you will, a real wizard. If someone were to appear on this stage in front of him and actually claim to be an ancient prince of Denmark named Hamlet, you would be insulted, and rightly so. Why would a man assume that you would believe something bizarre like this? But there exists out there a very large population of people who will tell you that they have psychic magical powers, that they can predict the future, that they can make contact with, with the deceased. Oh, they, they also say they will sell you astrology or other fortune-telling methods. And they also say that they can give you perpetual motion machines and uh, free energy systems. They claim to be psychics or sensitives, whatever they claim. But the one thing that has made a big comeback just recently is this business of speaking with the dead. Now, to my innocent mind, dead implies incapable of communicating. But these people, they tend to tell you that not only can they communicate with the dead, but they can hear the dead as well, and they can relay this information back to the living. I wonder if that's true. I don't think so, because this subculture of people use exactly the same gimmicks that we magicians do, exactly the same, the same uh, physical methods, the same psychological methods. And they effectively and profoundly deceive millions of people around the earth to their detriment. They deceive these people, 
cost them a lot of money, cost them a lot of emotional anguish. Billions of dollars are spent every year all over the globe on these charlatans. Now, I have two questions I would like to ask these people if I had the opportunity to do so. First question, I'm going to ask you to call up the ghost of my grandmother because when she died, she had the family will and she secreted it someplace we don't know where it is. So we ask Granny, where is the will, Granny? What does Granny say? She says, I'm in heaven, it's wonderful. I'm here with all my old friends, my deceased friends and my family and all the puppy dogs and the, the kittens that I used to have when I was a little girl. And I love you and I'll always be with you. Goodbye. And she didn't answer the damn question. Where is the will? <laughs> You're listening to the famous skeptic James Randi propound on the topic of my KX935's The Share Now Tonight, which is So You Think You May Be Psychic. He says, if you're calling out Granny and you need to know where the will is, and she says, I'm in heaven having a wonderful time, I love you, that's not quite enough. She could easily have said, oh, it's in the library on the second shelf behind the encyclopedia, but she doesn't say that. No, she doesn't. She doesn't bring any useful information to us. We paid a lot of money for that information, but we didn't get it. The second question that I'd like to ask, rather simple. Suppose I ask them to contact the spirit of my deceased father-in-law, as an example. Why do they insist on saying, my name starts with J or M? Is this 20 questions? No, it's more like 120 questions, but it is a cruel, vicious, absolutely consciousness, I'll be all right, keep your seats, game that these people play, and they take advantage of the innocent, the naive, the grieving, the needy people out there. Now, this is a process that is called cold reading. There's one fellow out there, James Von Prague, he's one of the big practitioners of this sort of thing. John Edward, Sylvia Brown, Rosemary Altia, they are other operators. There are hundreds of them all over the earth. But in this country, James Von Prague is very big. And what does he do? He likes to tell you how the deceased got deceased. So what he says is very often, it's like this, he says, he tells me, he tells me before he passed <laughs> that he had trouble breathing. Folks, that's what dying is all about. <laughs> you stop breathing, and then you're dead. It's that simple. And that's the kind of information they're going to bring back to you? I don't think so. Now, these people will make guesses. They'll say things like, why am I getting electricity? He's saying to me, electricity. Is he, was he an electrician? No. Did he ever have an electric razor? No. It was a game of hunting questions like this. This is what they go through. Now. Folks often ask us at the James Randi Educational Foundation, they call me, they say, why are you so concerned about this, Mr. Randi? Isn't that just a lot of fun? No, it is not fun. It is a cruel farce. Now, it may bring a certain amount of comfort, but that comfort lasts only about 20 minutes or so, and then the people look in the mirror and they say, I just paid a lot of money for that reading, and what did she say to me? I love you. They always say that. They don't get any information. They don't get any value for what they spend. Now, Sylvia Brown is the big operator. We call her the Talons. Sylvia Brown is the big operator in this field at this very moment. She actually gets $700 for a 20-minute reading over the telephone. She doesn't even go there in person. And you have to wait up to two years because she's booked ahead that amount of time. You pay by credit card or whatever, and then she will call you sometime in the next two years. Now, Montel Williams, is an intelligent man. We all know who he is on television. He's well-educated, he's smart. He knows what Sylvia Brown is doing, but he doesn't give a damn. He just doesn't care. 
because the bottom line is the sponsors love it, and he will expose her to television publicity all the time. Now, what does Sylvia Brown give you for that $700? She gives you the names of your guardian angels. That's first. Now, without that, how could we possibly function? She gives you the names of previous lives, who you were in previous lives. Duh. It turns out that the women that she gives readings for were all Babylonian princesses or something like that. And the men were all Grecian warriors fighting with Agamemnon. Nothing is ever said about a 14-year-old boot black in the streets of London who died of consumption. He isn't worth bringing back, obviously. And the strange things, folks, you may have noticed this too. You see these folks on television, they never call anybody back from hell. Everyone comes back from heaven, but never from hell. If they call back any of my friends, they're not going to, well, you see the story. Now, Sylvia Brown is an exception. An exception in one way, because the James Randi Educational Foundation, my foundation, offers a $1 million prize in negotiable bonds, very simply, won by all you have to do is prove any paranormal, occult, or supernatural event or power of any kind under proper observing conditions. It's very easy. Win the million dollars. Sylvia Brown is an exception in that she's the only professional psychic in the whole world that has accepted our challenge. She did this on the Larry King Live show on CNN six and a half years ago, and we haven't heard from her since. Strange. She said it, first of all, that she didn't know how to contact me. A professional psychic who speaks to dead people, she can't reach me. I'm alive, you may have noticed. She couldn't reach me. Now she says she doesn't want to reach me because I'm a godless person. All the more reason to take the million dollars, wouldn't you think, Sylvia? Now, these people need to be stopped. Seriously, now. They need to be stopped because this is a cruel farce. We get people coming to the foundation all the time. They're ruined financially and emotionally because they've given their money and their faith to these people. You are listening to The Sharon Hour on Laguna's KX935. I'm Sharon James. My topic tonight is, So You Think You Might Be Psychic. I'm currently playing you a TED Talk by famous skeptic James Randi, who is very opposed to anything unscientific, as well as any purveyors of such. Now I popped some pills earlier. I have to explain that to you. Uh, Homeopathy. Let's find out what that's all about. Hmm. You've heard of it. It's an alternative form of healing, right? Homeopathy actually consists, and that's what this is. This is um, uh, Calms Forte, 32 caplets of sleeping pills. I forgot to tell you that. I just ingested six and a half days worth of sleeping pills. <laughs> six and a half days. That certainly is a fatal dose. It says right in the back here, in case of overdose, contact your poison control center immediately, and it gives an 800 number. Keep your seats. It's going to be okay. I don't really need it. Because I've been doing this stunt for audiences all over the world for the last eight or ten years, taking fatal doses of homeopathic sleeping pills. Why don't they affect me? The answer may surprise you. What is homeopathy? It's taking a medicine that really works and diluting it down to the point where there's none of it left. Now, folks, this is not just a metaphor I'm going to give you now. It's true. It's exactly equivalent to taking one 325-milligram aspirin tablet, throwing it into the middle of Lake Tahoe, and then stirring it up, obviously with a very big stick, and waiting two years or so until the solution is homogeneous. 
Then when you get a headache, you take a sip of this water and voila, it is gone. Now that is true, that is what homeopathy is all about. And another claim that they make, you'll love this one, the more dilute the medicine is, they say, the more powerful it is. Now, wait a minute. We heard about a guy in Florida, the poor man. He was on homeopathic medicine. He died of an overdose. He forgot to take his pill. Work on it, work on it. It is absolutely ridiculous. I don't know what we're doing, believing in all this nonsense over all these years. Now, the James Randi Educational Foundation is waving this very big carrot. But I must say, the fact that nobody has taken us up on this offer doesn't mean that the powers don't exist. They might, someplace out there. Maybe these people are just independently wealthy. Well, with Sylvia Brown, I would think so. You know, $700 for a 20-minute reading over the telephone, that's more than lawyers make. I mean, that's a fabulous amount of money. These people don't need the million dollars, perhaps, but wouldn't you think they'd like to take it just to make me look silly? Just to get rid of this godless person out there that Sylvia Brown talks about all the time? I think that something needs to be done about this. We really would love to have suggestions from you folks on how to contact federal, state, and local authorities to get them to do something. If you find out now, I, I understand, we, we've seen people even today speaking to us about AIDS epidemics and, and starving kids around the world and impure water supplies that people have to suffer with. Those are very important critically important to us, and we must do something about those problems. But at the same time, as Arthur C. Clarke said, you know, the, the rotting of the human mind, the business of believing in the paranormal and the occult and the supernatural, all of this total nonsense, this, this medieval thinking, I think something should be done about that, and it all lies in education. Largely, it's the media who are to blame for this sort of thing. They shamelessly promote all kinds of nonsense of this sort because it pleases the sponsors. It's the bottom line, the dollar line. That's what they're looking at. We really must do something about this. I'm willing to take your suggestions and I'm willing to have you tune in to our webpage. It's www.randy.org. Go in there and look at the archives and you will begin to understand much more of what I've been talking about today you will see the records that we have. There's nothing like sitting in that library and having a family appear there and say that mom gave away all the family fortune. She cashed in the CDs, she gave away the stocks and the certificates. That's really sad to hear. And it hasn't helped them one bit, hasn't solved any of their problems. Yes, there could be a rotting of the American mind and of minds all the way around the earth if we don't start to think sensibly about these things. Now, we've offered this carrot, as I say, we've dangled the carrot, we're waiting for the psychics to come forth and snap at it. Oh, we get lots of them, hundreds of them every year come by. These are dowsers and people who think that they can talk to the dead as well, but they're amateurs. They don't know how to evaluate their own so-called powers. The professionals never come near us, except in that case of Sylvia Brown. She did accept and then backed away. Well, skeptic James Randi obviously has no time for anything mystical or surreal, so I'm not sure what he would have made of Eleanor London's story coming up next. You're tuned to The Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My topic tonight is, so you think you may be psychic?
Eleanor Longdon was eventually to become a psychologist and enter the scientific medical profession. But when her story started, she would not have thought of herself that way by a long stretch. The day I left home for the first time to go to university was a bright day, brimming with hope and optimism. I'd done well at school, expectations for me were high, and I gleefully entered the student life of lectures, parties, and traffic home theft. Now, appearances, of course, can be deceptive, and to an extent, this feisty, energetic persona of lecture-going and traffic-home stealing was a veneer, albeit a very well-crafted and convincing one. Underneath, I was actually deeply unhappy, insecure, and fundamentally frightened. Frightened of other people, of the future, of failure, and of the emptiness that I felt was within me. But I was skilled at hiding it, and from the outside, appeared to be someone with everything to hope for and aspire to. This fantasy of invulnerability was so complete that I even deceived myself. And as the first semester ended and the second begun, there was no way that anyone could have predicted what was just about to happen. I was leaving a seminar when it started, humming to myself, fumbling with my bag, just as I'd done a hundred times before, when suddenly I heard a voice calmly observe, she is leaving the room. I looked around, and there was no one there, but the clarity and decisiveness of the comment was unmistakable. Shaken, I left my books on the stairs and hurried home, and there it was again. She is opening the door. This was the beginning. The voice had arrived. And the voice persisted. Days and then weeks of it, on and on, narrating everything I did in the third person. She is going to the library. She is going to a lecture. It was neutral. Impassive and even, after a while, strangely companionate and reassuring. Although I did notice that its calm exterior sometimes slipped in that it occasionally mirrored my own unexpressed emotion. So, for example, if I was angry and had to hide it, which I often did, being very adept at concealing how I really felt, then the voice would sound frustrated. Otherwise, it was neither sinister nor disturbing, although even at that point, it was clear that it had something to communicate to me about my emotions, particularly emotions which were remote and inaccessible. Now, it was then that I made a fatal mistake in that I told a friend about the voice, and she was horrified. A subtle conditioning process had begun. The implication that normal people don't hear voices, and the fact that I did, meant that something was very seriously wrong. Such fear and mistrust was infectious. Suddenly, the voice didn't seem quite so benign anymore. And when she insisted that I seek medical attention, I duly complied, and which proved to be mistake number two. I spent some time telling the college GP about what I perceived to be the real problem. Anxiety, low self-worth, fears about the future, and was met with bored indifference, until I mentioned the voice. Upon which she dropped his pen, swung round, and began to question me with a show of real interest. And to be fair, I was desperate for interest and help, and I began to tell him about my strange commentator. And I always wish, at this point, the voice had said she is digging her own grave. I was referred to a psychiatrist who likewise took a grim view of the voice's presence, subsequently interpreting everything I said through a lens of latent insanity. For example, I was part of a student TV station that broadcast news bulletins around the campus, and during an appointment, which was running very late, I said, I'm sorry, doctor, I've got to go, I'm reading the news at six. Now, it's down in my medical records that Eleanor has delusions that she's a television news broadcaster. <laughs> it was at this point that events began to rapidly overtake me. A hospital admission followed, the first of many. A diagnosis of schizophrenia came next, and then, worst of all, 
a toxic, tormenting sense of hopelessness, humiliation, and despair about myself and my prospects. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than live. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along that he was all wrong, and I knew that he thought I was crazy, but I'm not. Oh no. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head. He said I'd need treatment, but I'm not that easily led. He said I was the type that was most inclined, went out of his sight to be out of my mind, and he thought I was nuts. No more ifs or ands or buts. Say, as a child, I appeared a little bit wild with all my crazy ideas. But I knew what was happening. I knew I was a genius. What's so strange when you know that you're a wizard at three? I knew that this was meant to be. Now I heard little children were supposed to sleep tight. That's why I got into the vodka one night. My parents got frantic, didn't know what to do. But I saw some crazy scenes before I came to. Now, do you think I was crazy? I may have been only three, but I was swinging. They all have an angry young man. They all have an Edison, also an Einstein. So why should I feel sorry if they just couldn't understand the idiomatic logic that went on in my head? I had a brain that was insane. Refused to ride on all those double-decker buses, all because there was no driver on the top. What? No driver on the top? And the tickets twisted, crazy, oopshooby, here flip city. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head, but I said, dear doctor, I think that it's you instead, because I have got a thing that's unique and new to prove that I'll have the last laugh on you, 'cause instead of one head, I got two. Two heads are better than one. You are tuned to the Sharon now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX nine three five. My topic tonight is: so you think you may be psychic? For Eleanor Longden, it was not a mild case of thinking herself psychic. She began to hear voices in her head, and they terrified her. Having been encouraged to see the voice, not as an experience but as a symptom, my fear and resistance towards it intensified. Now, essentially, this represented taking an aggressive stance towards my own mind—a kind of psychic civil war—and in turn, this caused the number of voices to increase and grow progressively hostile and menacing. Helplessly and hopelessly, I began to retreat into this nightmarish inner world in which the voices were destined to become both my persecutors and My only perceived companions. They told me, for example, that if I proved myself worthy of their help, then they could change my life back to how it had been. And a series of increasingly bizarre tasks were set—a kind of labor of Hercules. Started off quite small, for example, pull out three strands of hair, but gradually grew more extreme, culminating in commands to harm myself and a particularly dramatic instruction. You see that tutor over there? You see that glass of water? We have to go over and pour it over him in front of the other students. Which I actually did, and which, needless to say, did not endear me to the faculty. 
in effect, a vicious cycle of fear, avoidance, mistrust, and misunderstanding had been established. And this was a battle in which I felt powerless and incapable of establishing any kind of peace or reconciliation. Two years later, and the deterioration was dramatic. By now, I had the whole frenzied repertoire. Terrifying voices, grotesque visions, bizarre, intractable delusions. My mental health status had been a catalyst for discrimination, verbal abuse, and physical and sexual assault. And I'd been told by my psychiatrist, Elna, you'd be better off with cancer, because cancer is easier to cure than schizophrenia. I'd been diagnosed, drugged, and discarded, and was by now so tormented by the voices that I attempted to drill a hole in my head in order to get them out. Now, looking back on the wreckage and despair of those years, it seems to me now as if someone died in that place, and yet someone else was saved. A broken and haunted person began that journey, but the person who emerged was a survivor and would ultimately grow into the person I was destined to be. Many people have harmed me in my life, and I remember them all, but the memories grow pale and faint in comparison with the people who've helped me. The fellow survivors, the fellow voice hearers, the comrades and collaborators. The mother, who never gave up on me, who knew that one day I would come back to her and was willing to wait for me for as long as it took. The doctor, who only worked with me for a brief time, but who reinforced his belief that recovery was not only possible, but inevitable. And during a devastating period of relapse, told my terrified family, don't give up hope. I believe that Eleanor can get through this. Sometimes you know it snows as late as May, but summer always comes eventually. There's not enough time to fully credit those good and generous people who fought with me and for me and who waited to welcome me back from that agonized, lonely place. But together, they forged a blend of courage, creativity, integrity, and an unshakable belief that my shattered self could become healed and whole. I used to say that these people saved me, but what I now know is they did something even more important in that they empowered me to save myself. And crucially, they helped me to understand something which I'd always suspected, that my voices were a meaningful response to traumatic life events, particularly childhood events, and as such were not my enemies, but a source of insight into solvable emotional problems. Ich bin nicht mehr schreien, alles wird so klar. 
Okay, the lyrics for that song are, I'd like to be a polar bear in a cold polar region. Then I wouldn't have to scream anymore. Everything would be so clear. <laughs> I think that's what this psychologist whose TED talk you're hearing, her name is Eleanor Longdon, might have felt when she had what was described as a schizophrenic period in her life when she was hearing voices. And they weren't kindly voices either. You're tuned to The Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on the Goonies KX935. My topic for tonight's Sharon Now is, so you think you may be psychic? Well, maybe you won't want to think that anymore after you've heard this show. Here's what happened to soon-to-become psychologist Eleanor Longdon with regard to the voices that had taken up residence in her head. She said her first task was to persuade herself that the voices weren't her enemies, but rather a source of insight into past childhood traumas. This was very difficult, not least because the voices appeared so hostile and menacing. So a vital first step was learning to separate out a metaphorical meaning from what I'd previously interpreted to be a literal truth. So, for example, voices which threatened to attack my home, I learned to interpret as my own sense of fear and insecurity in the world rather than an actual objective danger. Then I would try and deconstruct the message behind the words. So, when the voices warned me not to leave the house, then I would thank them for drawing my attention to how unsafe I felt, because if I was aware of it, then I could do something positive about it. Reassure both them and myself that we were safe and didn't need to feel frightened anymore. I would set boundaries for the voices and try to interact with them in a way that was assertive yet respectful, establishing a slow process of communication and collaboration in which we could learn to work together and support one another. Throughout all of this, what I would ultimately realize was that each voice was closely related to aspects of myself and that each of them carried overwhelming emotions that I'd never had an opportunity to process or resolve. Memories of sexual trauma and abuse, of anger, shame, guilt, low self-worth. The voices took the place of this pain and gave words to it. And possibly one of the greatest revelations was when I realized that the most hostile and aggressive voices actually represented the parts of me that had been hurt the most profoundly. And as such, it was these voices that needed to be shown the greatest compassion and care. It was armed with this knowledge that ultimately I would gather together my shattered self, each fragment represented by a different voice. I would gradually withdraw from all my medication and return to psychiatry. Only this time, from the other side. Ten years after the voice first came, I finally graduated with the highest degree in psychology the university had ever given. One year later, the highest master's. In fact, one of the voices actually dictated the answers during the exam, which technically possibly counts as cheating. <laughs> And to be honest, sometimes I quite enjoyed their attention as well. As Oscar Wilde has said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. It also makes you very good at eavesdropping because you can listen to two conversations simultaneously, so it's not all bad. I worked in mental health services, I spoke at conferences, I published book chapters and academic articles, and I argued, and continue to do so, the relevance of the following concept, that an important question in psychiatry shouldn't be what's wrong with you, but rather what's happened to you. And all the while, I listened to my voices, with whom I'd finally learned to live with peace and respect, and which in turn reflected a growing sense of compassion, acceptance, and respect towards myself. 
And I remember the most moving and extraordinary moment when supporting another young woman who was terrorized by her voices and becoming fully aware for the very first time that I no longer felt that way myself, but was finally able to help someone else who was. You're tuned to The Sharer now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My topic for tonight's Sharer now is, so you think you may be psychic. Eleanor Longdon was eventually to become a psychologist, but at the particular stage when her story started, when she was hearing voices, that wasn't really on the horizon. I'm now very proud to be a part of Intervoice, the organizational body of the International Hearing Voices Movement, inspired by the work of Professor Marius Rom and Dr. Sonja Escher, which locates voice hearing as a survival strategy, a sane reaction to insane circumstances, not as an aberrant symptom of schizophrenia to be endured, but a complex, significant, and meaningful experience to be explored. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. We don't have to live our lives forever defined by the damaging things that have happened to us. We are unique, we are irreplaceable. What lies within us can never be truly colonized, contorted, or taken away. As a very wonderful doctor once said to me, don't tell me what other people have told you about yourself. Tell me about you. So, in conclusion, what have we learned? That hearing voices doesn't necessarily mean you're crazy. We can have auditory hallucinations for all sorts of reasons, or we can persuade ourselves or be persuaded that we're having them, as in all religious teachings basically involve hearing voices, hearing the voice of God, being prompted to do something in the name of righteousness. Now, hearing voices, of course, can be a sign of schizophrenia, but it doesn't at all have to be. In many instances, it can simply be a temporary condition. There's something called temporal lobe epilepsy, where something goes wrong in our brain, but is gradually righted. There's hypnagogia, which is the stage before sleep, when we're not in a fully conscious state, but also not yet totally removed from our life when we're awake. And in fact, hearing voices can be caused by sleep deprivation, a variety of traumas, a divorce or a death in the family or some terrible accident or horrors at work, you name it, the sort of things that we do go through generally. It can be genetic, this hearing of voices. It can run in families or it can be a kind of atavistic thing, carrying sounds in our head and we do it naturally for evolutionary reasons. For instance, if we walk into a place where we know there are bears, we may hear the sound of a bear, even though there isn't one there, just to sort of warn us to be on guard. And then we can have those kind of auditory hallucinations, like hearing the sound of running water when we're in a desert and we're really thirsty. Maybe that nourishes us in some way, makes the body think it's being hydrated. In all events, the point is... You might not be mad if you happen to hear voices. Research has shown that between 5 and 25% of us do, depending on what country we live in. Nepal, apparently, has a large quotient of people who hear voices. So it doesn't mean we're crazy. It doesn't mean we're psychic. It doesn't mean we're going to hear them forever at will. I'll leave you with that. If you want to hear this show again, it does podcast on iTunes or go to our dedicated website, KX935.
kx935.com. For this show, it's kx935.com slash shows slash the dash Sharon dash our. That's sharing without the G, a pun on my name, our with the H, because the show is an hour, an hour full of a variety of topics, interviews, conversations, with occasional music thrown in. This is Sharon James saying, I do hope you will join me for more The Sharon Hours every Monday night at 9pm. Meantime, have a great week ahead. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.